I just can't help dancing a little bit with that music. You know, I, I keep getting, getting a hard time because that's old man music, but I'm an old man. So <clears throat> uh, today we're going to be talking about something that uh, I got, I got just sort of deluge. I, I, I got beat up with it. I got a waterfall of requests and uh, items about this that Peter Atia. A lot of folks that watch us also watch Peter Atiyah. And um, folks have some folks have compared us because we both were at Hopkins. He, he's young. I'm not. Uh, but we're both in very, very much related areas. Now, the reason that I got, um, I got a lot of folks asking about this was he covered one time APOB and cardiovascular risk. And the point of his guest was that um, it's more than just LDL. Now, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus did a great job. I sent him some stuff on this issue, and he went back and, uh, as we all usually do, we went into a lot of source academic articles, and you'll see that we cover APOB. Now, <clears throat> even just in the first word of the title, it gets a little bit technical. Most people don't really understand what APOB is. So that's why I'm holding this uh, bottle of water. As you can see along the top edge, there's more than water in here. There is um, some healthy oil, uh, avocado oil, oil. But as you see, look, <clears throat> if if we eat something, if we even eat an avocado, for example, it doesn't mix with water. Our blood is over 95% water. So if I had a big blob of avocado fat in my blood like that, it would, it would, it could cause things like a heart attack or a stroke. I mean, it could take out major chunks of tissue, just like a heart attack or stroke would from a clot. Why doesn't our body do that when we eat an avocado? Our, our body has a lot of ways of solving problems, and ApoB is one of those ways of doing it. It stands for apolipoprotein B. And here's the thing. You hear about, quote, good cholesterol and, quote, bad cholesterol, which are... Uh, outdated overgeneralizations in the first place. But we're not going to go down that bunny hole. We're going to talk a little bit about APOB and apolipoprotein. So the cholesterol and the lipids, the fats that we eat would cause major danger if we didn't have the apolipoproteins. Apolipoproteins are what cause tiny little particles, they, they wrap around these, uh, these fat particles and make them so tiny that there is not a, um, what we call an infarction. It doesn't, it doesn't block the arteries like that big, like that big bubble of fat would do. So <laughs> now you go back to the topic, there are folks that look at this and say, you know, it's not just uh, LDL. It's not just the cholesterol particle. It's the protein that makes it and the amount and type and where that protein's going. 
So we're going to dig a little bit deeper into that. I don't know how interesting that's going to be to the majority of folks, but um, again, there's a whole bunch of folks that really uh, got interested when we started covering that or when uh, Peter Atia covered it. Um, <clears throat> before we get to that main topic, though, we've got several different things to cover. Previous topics, for example, if you've, if you've never been to this channel, uh, we cover the things that are killing and disabling people, like heart attacks, strokes, uh, and the things that cause that prediabetes. So one of the recent topics was the fact that stress tests don't predict heart attacks. I hate to tell you that. Tim Russert is the was the poster boy for that. Uh, David Mainz and Dr. Jesus, Dr. Vega, uh, covered keeping your brain healthy a couple of weeks ago when I was in Wyoming. And vitamin K2 is always interesting to the supplementers in the crowd, and there are a lot of them. And we looked at the, uh, the evidence behind insulin resistance. You know, the the urban myth is that vitamin K2 takes calcium out of the artery wall and puts it in the bone. That may be true, but I don't think that it's quite that simple. I think it, the issue has to do with vitamin K2 impacting insulin resistance. And so we covered the details on that, some of the science. Speaking of things like uh, heart attack, stroke, and prediabetes, it's unfortunate, but it's true. Even in the United States where we're supposed to have the, um, the ultimate in, um, or, or one of the best trained healthcare staff, manpower groups in the world, two thirds of us, two thirds of, the, of doctors in the United States don't know how to diagnose the major underlying cause for this problem, prediabetes let alone how to manage it. And so, unfortunately, uh, in several ways, that being one of them, if you want to protect your health, you have to get focused. You have to learn some basic things and you have to get engaged. We're going to talk about you <clears throat> getting engaged to protect your own health uh, in just a minute. <clears throat> um, so one of the things that you actually have to do is learn a little bit about uh, about health, uh, insulin resistance, prediabetes, cardiovascular inflammation, plaque. And it's like, do you have to go to medical school? No, you don't. We've developed a basic core curriculum for patients uh, in these areas. We'll give it away for free if you can't afford 19 bucks. Uh, most of these we give away for free anyway. Um, and in just a couple of hours, you can learn more about insulin resistance than two-thirds of primary care doctors in America. You can learn more about plaque and how to evaluate it and the fact that if stress tests don't predict heart attack, what does? Um, and about something that very few people understand, and that is cardiovascular inflammation, which at the end of the day is the real big risk. If you're interested in our content, but not so interested in YouTube, um, you can look at Locals, you can, you can look at Rumble. Uh, those two have been growing faster than any of our outlets. Um, if you're a YouTuber, uh, we have a, a way to, uh, to help us get this information out to others. You can just join our 
um, <clears throat> our YouTube uh, membership. And I think Gilbert, that by the way, is growing very, very quickly. We've got a couple of uh, premium members and I think Gilbert will be putting their, uh, their names up on, on the banner in just a few minutes. We thought as we got into Medicare Advantage and Medicare um, that we might be uh, decreasing our monthly subscription plans. And it turns out, no, that's not the case. The subscription plans have been our most popular and really most effective way of seeing us and will continue to be that way for a lot of people who aren't quite on Medicare yet. Um, and we'll get into details on how that works later. Uh, as I mentioned, um, the prevention book, uh, I, I continue to criticize it, but folks continue to say, hey, it's really good information. Uh, you can find that on Amazon. It's called Prevention Myths. Why a, heart, why a stress test doesn't pre prevent a heart attack or predict a heart attack. And again, what you can do to predict your own risk, to understand your own risk for a heart attack. And it gets into things like prediabetes and um, cardiovascular inflammation. It also gets into um, what to do about it and other ways of, of understanding this, like CIMT, calcium score, and the up-and-comer CT angiogram. Now, let's take a few minutes and talk about the upcoming uh, Medicare program. We are piloting. If you're in the state of Florida right now, for example, and you're going to be uh, signing up with this, you need to talk to Michelle and let her know you're in Florida because we uh, started taking Medicare this week in Florida. Now, it's, uh, it's a very exciting thing for me. I remember when we started this practice not quite a decade ago, um, but many, several years ago. And one of the things I said to Janice, who you know is a health coach, is that because of the fact that um, that healthcare and your health is not determined nearly so much by what a doctor does, like a prescription a doctor might write for you when you see the doctor three or four times a year, what really determines your health is what you do multiple times every day, especially in terms of diet, but also exercise, sleep, stress, things like that. Because of that, my highest and best use is as a health coach extender. That's what I do. And it, it sounds like I'm being facetious and sarcastic. And I am somewhat, but there's real truth behind that. <clears throat> The most important thing that I can do is help patients walk through what your body is telling you. Uh, and that's the majority of the experience with us, with me. And that is understanding what your uh, lipid pro profile, your cholesterol profile is telling you, what your fractionation is telling you, what your uh, body is actually doing in terms of glucose and carbohydrate metabolism. And then once you understand those details, what your body's telling you, then you have a much better understanding of what to do in terms of your own lifestyle. Now, let's get back to, uh, uh, to Medicare for a minute. As you may or may not know, I, I uh, started 
I started up as an ER doc and it became really clear really quickly that if I wanted to have the excitement of being an ER, if it ER doc, if it was all about me having fun, I would stay in ER. But if it was really about the patients, I needed to take a, a hard turn in my career and do a couple of things that I never, ever wanted to do. I mean, I always said there are two jobs that I would hate. One of them is being a teacher because people don't listen. And, you know, it's like like the Charlie Brown thing. But guess what? I'm a teacher now. The other thing that I didn't want to do is be a bean counter and accountant. Well, once you start getting into prevention, you're not just talking to one patient at a time. You're talking to populations of patients at a time, just like we're doing here on this uh, on, on this YouTube live. So I ended up going, I left the ER, I went to the place that had the best prevention program in the world, Johns Hopkins. I went into prevention. I loved it, despite the fact that I had to do a lot of bean counting and a lot of teaching. I did very well and ended up running the program and teaching other doctors coming to Hopkins for training in preventive medicine. I haven't looked back. I've loved it ever since. So part of my core interest is public health, is helping people throughout the country, throughout the world, understand what's really impacting your health. And it's not what you think. It's not something where you just go to the doc three times a year and get a prescription and the doc fixes it. It's what you do all day, every day. Now, another core component about that is you want to be able to reach people more than just folks that own their own airplane, more than just very wealthy folks. And that's always been a problem with us because we couldn't make things work with something that's very accessible like Medicare. In fact, if you look at Medicare, fewer and fewer and fewer doctors have been taking Medicare because it's been, uh, they got worried. They were going to go bankrupt 20 years ago, Medicare in the, here in the United States. So um, they made a lot of changes. One of the things they did was they recognized that most of their care was fee-for-service. Fee-for-service you know, doctors are like anybody else. They do what you pay them to do. And when you're doing fee-for-service, when Medicare is paying for fee-for-service, it's the doctor comes in, they try to find a way that they can quickly write a prescription because that's what they're getting paid to do. And then they want to get out and go see the next patient and write another script. That's not what impacts health. Medicare has recognized that. They have, over the past 20 years, continued to decrease what they pay for fee-for-service activities, writing that script. But they've recently begun to understand how they can improve prevention, how they can engage patients. That's where, you know, it sounded like I was going down a bunny hole, but now I'm coming back out of the bunny hole and want to talk with you a minute. If you're going to do Medicare with us, you've got to agree to do chronic care management. Now, what is that? There's a little bit of a headache. In fact, as we're discovering this, we're finding with our pilot patients, and I was our first patient, our first pilot patient, and I'll share with you some of my experience. It's like, 
wait a minute, I've got to answer questions from my doctor's office every day? Yes, you do. And here's, let me make one more comment about finances and why Medicare is doing that. Medicare found very quickly, and just over the past year or so, it's become really clear. People that, that participate in this chronic care management program, they interact with their doctor's office. Yes, did I say it every day? They end up not going to the hospital. So they're better off, they're healthier, and guess what? For every hundred people, every two or three hospitalizations that Medicare doesn't have to pay for, they can pay for a lot of primary care. That's exactly how Medicare Advantage works. Now, let me go back. I realize I've already put a lot of people off when I said interact with the doctor's office every day. But I also said I am the patient. The, our very first patient. And let me show you how long this takes. So <clears throat> I got my um, CCIQ. Here's my CCIQ. It came in this morning. I saved it for today so I can show you how this works. So it takes me over to the software, the questions. I do a facial ID. Here's how long it takes to interact with your doctor's office every day. Start your timers. Enter blood sugar management. I don't have, I'm, I'm on the diabetes protocol because I'm diabetic. That's my biggest risk factor. I don't have that today. I don't have my Libre on. I had it on for the past two weeks. So I don't have access to a glucometer. Would you like to add any additional information about your blood sugar? No, I'm, in, I'm comfortable. I've got good control on that issue. Have you taken your medicine as directed? Yes, I have. Would you like a nurse to call you today? No, not today. Finished. So on average, this takes 45 seconds or less. Um. And there you go. So here's the thing. <clears throat> if you want us to, uh, we can still do the standard uh, direct pay. We do that. Uh, but if you want us to do Medicare, you have to agree to the Medicare programs. And the Medicare programs have some of their requirements. One of these is CCM, and it's answering 30 to 45 seconds worth of questions every day. So... <clears throat> I hope that helped. Let me go back to script now. So what is CCM? It's a care management uh, coordination program. It helps you begin to realize that health, that your health is a daily activity. It's really uh, what you do every day, not so much what the doctor, the scripts, the doc writes three times a year. It helps to better manage chronic conditions, significant, uh, providing significant support and better care access. Uh, Chronic care man uh, management program is free for eligible Medicare patients with secondary insurance, you know, the supplement. Now, if you have a Medicare Advantage program, it varies by the Medicare Advantage program. We have 13 pilot patients right now. And again, I gave you a little bit of what's going on with us pilot patients. Uh, 
if you're in Florida and you're on Medicare, make sure that you check in with Michelle and uh, talk with her about getting started if you'd like. As I said, yep, uh, Medicare requires a, for what we're doing, chronic care management, they require a response every day, but it's 45 seconds. If you can't invest 45 seconds, 30 seconds of your time daily, then Medicare with us is probably not a good, good way for you to go. But if you can, give us a, uh, check us out. So, okay, now I'm, as you know, we're going to get to some of the science content for the day. And uh, as you know, we have too much to cover in our uh, weekly YouTube lives. So we've started doing a short content and a long form content. I mentioned to you that we're going to be talking about um, APOB for the long form content today. The short form content is atherosclerosis after COVID infection. This is from Frontiers in Medicine 2021 uh, from a Chinese uh, group because uh, for obvious reasons, they were some of the first groups to see this. The objective was to clarify susceptibility to new onset atherosclerosis in SARS-CoV infection. The authors looked at 71 patients with A1C levels and angiotensin converting enzyme, uh, ACE2 receptor mediators. Um, they were looking at these in terms of COVID infection. What they found, and, and as you know, uh, they discovered early on that those of us who have diabetes or prediabetes, and guess what? If you're on this channel, you 50% of us are 55 or older, and most of that group has at least prediabetes or diabetes. So this is us. This is us, folks. Um, the combination of prediabetes and COVID uh, leads to endothelial dysfunction. It damages the lining of our artery wall. Uh, there's dysregulation of the renin, renin angiotensin system, which is what covers and controls our blood pressure. You may remember there was a lot of concern early on about ACE inhibitors uh, because a very, very popular and one of the best blood pressure control medications. So in the very beginning, when that was discovered, they said, oh, maybe you shouldn't take ACE inhibitors. That was debunked uh, within a few weeks, but that was a big question. And this is why it was, because it was looking at that ACE um, receptor, which controls blood pressure. So expression of receptors such as CD147, NLRP3, uh, these were inflammatory uh, receptors. And you started getting those receptors firing off and um, uh, reflecting inflammation in the, uh, in the artery walls. So SARS-CoV-2 or uh, COVID attacks the immune system and the res um, respiratory system, the uh, cardiovascular system, the um, endocrine system. It attacks a lot of stuff. And so the I was just talking with another patient yesterday who's on who's got long COVID and having some major problems. And he and I both brought up the point. The folks that think that COVID's nothing but a minor flu, it is. I mean, we are going to live through it. We're going to push through it. We're already getting there, but it's a lot more than a flu. So anyhow, that was the content for the short content 
uh, form. So as I said, we got a lot of interest on ApoB. And uh, an interesting component, side component here, was PS, PCSK9 gene editing. Now, for those of you who are recognizing, the PCSK9s are the new, uh, new as of the past few years, quote, wonder drugs for um, LDL, for cholesterol, lowering cholesterol. Uh, people that have FH, familial hypercholesterolemia, uh, are have been uh, have been aware of that. That was that drug came out eighty thousand dollars a year. Now it's much much less. But here's an interesting piece of news. There's an ongoing trial. Preliminary report just came out uh, recently. Uh, August of this year, there was a volunteer in New Zealand suffering from familial hypercholesterolemia. And I've got a lot of those patients. He became the first person to undergo DNA editing to decrease his cholesterol. Sekar Kathirasan, CEO of Verve, the company in charge of this research, proposes this as an answer for heart attack prevention. Well, you know what, Sekar, like, so many folks is really probably too deep into the cholesterol risk factor, but still, especially for FH patients, familial hypercholesterol patients where their LDL, not their total cholesterol, but their LDLs will get into 180, 200, 250, 300, you know, really high levels and FH LDL does matter at those kind of levels. They're using CRISPR. Uh, for those of you, mm, a lot of you probably haven't heard of that. CRISPR-Cas9, that's the gen, uh, gene editing uh, tool that's been out, gosh, over a decade ago. I remember reading a whole book about it from the guy at uh, Harvard who's uh, like the grandfather of, of doing that work. CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats, if you're interested. Uh, if you remember that, you're better, you're smarter than I am, because I do remember CRISPR-Cas9, but I uh, don't remember the, what it stands for. It's, I, I do know it's the technology they use to edit genes. And they're using that to change the PCSK9 gene. You know, when I saw that, one of the questions I had was, wait a minute. There are, so <clears throat> number one, people think, well, wait a minute, that was PCSK9, that was the drug. Well, the drug is a, uh, is a PCSK9 inhibitor. Uh, PCSK9 gene is the major gene for having uh, problems uh, SNPs, which cause um, familial hypercholesterolemia, FH. But my question was, well, wait a minute. There are 2,000 different SNPs, single nucleotide uh, polymorphisms. In other words, what most people think of as mutation, it's not mutation. Technically, mutation is the one time that happens. After it becomes inherited, it's a polymorphism. Poly meaning many, morphism meaning um, um, situations or body habitus or uh, genetic variation. So once a mutation becomes stable, it's called a SNP. Um, 
So there are 2,000 of them that can form FH. So that made me think, well, which ones are they doing? And what are they doing in terms of CRISPR? It wasn't entirely clear, but as you think deeper about those 2,000 SNPs, go back 20 years ago, or at least 15, 10 to 15. Well, maybe it wasn't that long ago. Actually, it was maybe 10 years ago. If you got the genetic tests, the human genetics, as you may remember, I worked in a human genetics lab for years. Um, and we were doing um, PCSK9 gene uh, testing for FH testing. And even with just four of those SNPs, we got like 60 to 75% of, of PCSK9 tests. Then we got to eight, then we got to 12, then I think they're closer to 24 now. And so at that point, they're getting like 98, 99%. So you really don't have to be able to impact all 2,000. You just need to be able to impact a very small number to get the vast majority of people that have PCSK9 problems. So I'm going to leave that and go into another area of ApoB and cardiovascular disease. By the way, the PCSK9 gene does have a lot to do with the ApoB protein. That's why we're talking about ApoB, and that's why that PCSK9 came up. Apolipoprotein B, or ApoB, is a critical structure protein, the critical structure protein in the formation of LDL. But not only LDL, also IDL and VLDL, where, which may actually be more important in terms of plaque. Um, I've, you know, when I talk with patients about that, uh, patients that come in through the channel know not only more than most patients, they know more than most doctors about this issue. But even then, most patients coming in don't really understand what remnant cholesterol is. And we're going to go into remnant cholesterol for just a second. How does this whole process work? Um, in terms of managing cholesterol. So let's go back to our little discussion here. Let's say that we eat something that has some fat in it. That fat gets, again, we can't absorb it that way and just put it in our the water-based blood system we have. We have to have uh, proteins which bunch the, these fats into tiny balls. Coming out of the small intestine, you have what's called a chylomicron. That's what CM stands for. Chylomicrons are formed by proteins. The chylomicrons then separate out. The HDL comes off. And guess what HDL, what forms HDL? ApoA1. So uh, one protein, ApoA1, forms HDL. Another protein... ApoB forms LDL, VLDL, which is very low density protein or lipoprotein. Remember what HDL stands for? High density lipoprotein. In other words, you see a lot more. It's higher density because you're seeing more protein, um, a higher ratio of protein to cholesterol. The cholesterol and the fats are the same in any of these particles, somewhat 
there's clarification to that, but we're not going to go into that. The cholesterol is cholesterol, no matter which particle it's in. The fatty acid is fatty acid, no matter which particle it's in. The triglyceride is the same triglyceride, no matter which particle it's in, again, with some qualifiers. But we're not going to go into those qualifiers because this stuff is so confusing for most folks anyway. <clears throat> so let's go back. HDL has its high density because it's the particles formed with this protein, ApoA1. ApoA1 uh, takes fewer fats, less cholesterol. And so the particle itself has a higher uh, component of protein, lower component of uh, fat or cholesterol. That's why it's higher density. That's all. That's where the name comes from. LDL has is a or ApoB has more uh, latches on to more uh, fat uh, fat within the particle, so the particle is lower density. It floats better. As I mentioned, it's not just LDL. There's a thing called remnant cholesterol, and. <clears throat> If how do you find your, your remnant cholesterol? The reality is it's very easy to get an estimate of your remnant cholesterol. All you have to do is add HDL to your LDL particle, HDL plus LDL, subtract that number from your total cholesterol, and that's going to give you remnant, which is mostly going to be um, VLDL and IDL very low density lipoprotein and intermittent density lipoprotein. Why is it not a lot of CM, uh, chylomicron and chylomicron remnant? Those last uh, minutes to hours, the other ones are what are stable in the, in the bloodstream. So if you want to know uh, what your remnant cholesterol is, take your total cholesterol, subtract your LDL and HDL, and you get this. Why is that important? Because remnant cholesterol does appear to be much more atherogenic than either of these two, LDL or HDL. Um, hope that connected some dots for you. So anyhow, back to the script. Metabolites 2021 from the uh, team from Long Island School of Medicine the evidence showed that ApoB is a more accurate indicator of cardiovascular risk than either total cholesterol or LDL, partially because, um, as we just described, it's much more related to uh, remnant cholesterol, IDL and VLDL. The interheart study, um, most of you that look at studies have seen this one. You may remember it, you may not. There's a lot of studies out there, so don't feel bad if you don't. But it was a very well-known study, and it had it impacted a lot of the science. Case control, study of heart attacks, 15,152 cases versus 14,820 controls. The objective was to identify association of multiple risk factors with heart attacks. Patients were uh, admitted to the uh, hospital emergency department for heart attack were screened from 1991 to 2003. The ApoB, ApoB over ApoA1 ratio, in other words, everything except HDL over HDL 
ratio showed to be one of the most important risk factors. It was second only to smoking in that interheart study. Now, as Jesus and I were discussing this, one of the points I brought up was, really? It was even bigger than diabetes? And sure enough, in the interheart study, it was bigger. Now, that's where we get into, you know, we get out of our medical, maybe our medical science hat and get more into our epidemiologist hat. Epidemiologist meaning someone who studies, studies who, you know, the bean counterpart. Do I think uh, ApoB is a more important uh, indicator or risk factor than diabetes? No, I don't. So why would this show up and why would I think that? So here's the issue. The vast majority of diabetes was not, um, was not diagnosed. We know that. We know that the majority of patients that have diabetes and even more so prediabetes, 90% of people with prediabetes are not diagnosed. So what does that mean then? Well, that means that uh, <clears throat> it, it waters down the effect. If you had twice as many people in the heart attack group, the cases that had diabetes uh, as in the controls, it would show as a very, very powerful risk factor. But because 90% of it's undiagnosed, it totally, it washes out the strength of diabetes as a risk factor. Despite the fact that diabetes is so washed out by lack of diagnosis in the population, it still comes across as clearly one of the, what, three highest risk factors. It's higher, uh, it's higher than everything else except ApoB over A1 and smoking. Smoking is pretty clear. We know who smoked. ApoB over A1, also really clear. We know who had that. 90% of folks with diabetes and prediabetes totally undiagnosed. And yet it still comes out as the number three risk factor. So again, a little bit of epidemi <clears throat> epidemiology and diabetology as a risk factor. So let's go to the next one. Archives of Biochemistry and Biophysics 2021 in China. Systematic review. PCSK9, uh, the gene, exerts very effect various effects on, heart on the heart independent of LDL cholesterol regulation. It regulates fatty acid metabolism, heart muscle contractility, and platelet production. So again, it goes back to one of my, my favorite quotes. And it was, I think it was in the book, the diary, the author, whatever. One of the favorite lines was, it's just not that simple. Don't we wish it were? PCSK9 levels correlate to age, diabetes, obesity, and hypertension. The use of PCSK9 inhibitors reduces infarction size, arrhythmias. Again, we are starting to get a little bit deeper and a little bit more common use of PCSK9s because what we're finding is it's not just about LDL. And with PCSK9s, it's not just about LDL.
So thank you for your interest so far. We're continuing to to grow the population. We started with uh, what, 60, 70. And uh, as we go, because ApoB, uh, most people don't get it. Most people don't understand it. So it's not a very attractive title. It's not clickbait. It's a little bit technical, but now we're pushing a hundred. So thank you again for your interest. Uh, I, as I said, we've got a couple of uh, new premium uh, members one of them sounds very much like somebody I know, a fellow that I call, uh, we've always called James Roberts. Goes by Jamie, Jamie Honeycutt. Uh, my family just had a reunion. And if I'm assuming that it's you, Jamie. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. That's helping us get information that's life-saving um, out to, uh, to the whole world. Uh, our number five country for uploads is China. And, uh, you know, there's I'm sure I'm not the only person that's not very happy about the Chinese government, but that doesn't mean they're what billion, billion and a half people that uh, are under the yoke of that government that still deserve to have good health. Thank you so much. This helps us get there. Uh, and it, again, it's all over the world. Uh, Infinite Potential Institute. Thank you so much as well. <clears throat> um, let's go. We've got a lot of questions. I'm going to see if I can, I can uh, get through them to the you know the best benefit of all of us. Uh, assuming a question uh, pulls out some some good content. Candus, Candus. Interesting topic. There's so much confusion. I'm confused too. You know what? Thank you for acknowledging that. Let me tell you something. I'm still confused. Everybody is confused over these topics. Um, we grew up thinking that HDL is this, LDL is this, and most, most of us didn't connect the dots. That The cholesterol that they're carrying is the same cholesterol. What we've got is a more, much more of an equilibrium of what is probably biomarkers as opposed to just actors, uh, active actors in a play. So we're trying to take all those biomarkers and piece them together. Bart Robinson, good morning and a great topic. Thank you so much, Bart. Robert Weiss from the North Georgia Mountains, good morning to you. Bobby Mabu, hey, Bobby Ocampo. Um, Good life, happy life. Rick Foles, apologies. Tried to ask a question last week several times, but each time the autocorrect changed the words, confused the question. Let's try again. Next post. Okay. Thoughts on, oh, Malcolm Kendricks. Yeah, so the clot thickens. Rick, thank you so much. As I promised, I went a little bit deeper into Malcolm Kendricks and the clot thickens his thrombogenic explanation for plaque. And that plaque is necrotic materials from LP, little a, not LDL. So I spent, gosh, probably a couple of hours listening to Malcolm. And for the most part, um, there's not a lot of difference between uh, what I pieced together from the evidence and what I hear from Malcolm. There are some, some issues. For example, he says there's, quote, there's a hole in the endothelium. You actually lose 
uh, parts of that area. I don't, he may not be aware of evidence coming out from the University of Texas ah, three or four years ago now that you don't really get holes in the endothelium. It doesn't appear to be the case. Most of us thought that up until this UT study or, or the continued evidence around that UT study involving transcytosis, trans meaning through and cytosis meaning cell. So I don't really think it's um, uh, that it, it's always just a, uh, you lose that endothelium entirely. What you do appear to lose is the glycocalyx. So once that single cell layer in the uh, endothelium gets damaged, it, it, the damage usually consists of losing the glycocalyx, which is critical and important. At that point, then, uh, uh, small dense LDL, oxidized LDL can transcytose. It goes through that injured endothelial cell. How much of that is bleeding and clots forming from that bleeding? I think there's a lot of uh, assumption there. At the end of the day, how much does it matter? Um, at the end of the day, uh, whether it's transcytosis with no bleeding or uh, bleeding, uh, those the differences on a practical basis are not that critical. They're both very different from the standard that it's just LDL floating around in the bloodstream and the LDL level. That's not, uh, so <clears throat> I think there's some, clearly some differences. Uh, the other thing is there's a little bit of a difference in style. Uh, Malcolm seems to be very much, uh, totally focused on being the debunker. And uh, I debunk a lot of stuff, but my goal is not so much debunking. My goal is to get, you know, take what we know and get people healthy. So there's some style differences. There's clearly some uh, differences in terms of the theory, but the theories both uh, are close enough to where on a practical basis, I don't see as significant practical difference. Thank you, Rick. That was um, very helpful. And I think what confused me was I kept seeing words like slow oven or throw oven or something like that. And thank you for getting it all cleared up. And uh, thank you for giving me a week to, to check it out a little bit more deeply. Bobby Ocampo, we don't have this APOB test in the Philippines. I'm aware of that. You know, the thing is, Bobby, I'm glad you brought that up. Because here's my perspective. ApoB is interesting. And, you know, like many things covered by Peter Atia and a whole bunch of other folks, there's a lot of science interest there. But on a practical basis, uh, you know what? If 90% of people are not getting an o a, a insulin survey or even an OGTT, why in the heck worry about ApoB? It's like, Talk about measuring in the minors. Thank you for bringing that up. Jonathan Hull. Good morning, Dr. B and team. Do you routinely test your patients for APO? But yes, we do. But I mean, it's, yes, we do. It helps us educate the patient regarding uh, what's going on with their metabolism. But as I said, it's not nearly as important as a lot of other stuff like the um, 
the fractionation. You know, Thomas uh, uh, Dayspring would say most docs get the, the cholesterol panel and they don't get the fractionation. And the cholesterol panel tells you nothing and the fractionation tells you everything. I'm a big fan of Dayspring, big fan of Atiyah's as well. But I don't agree with either of them in, uh, completely. Um, I get a lot out of the, and I, I get a, I understand exactly what Dayspring's saying about the fractionation. It is critical. It helps us understand what's going on with the metabolism. I would also agree with, with Dayspring and Atia that it's really telling us more about what's going on with the carb metabolism than what most doctors think. But I'm going to go back to that carb metabolism and Dayspring's comment that the, uh, the simple, uh, cholesterol panel is not worth much. It's critical. Um, you know, it's like Chuck Smith said on our uh, video, Chuck lost 50 pounds working directly with, um, uh, somebody remind me of the name. It's one of these plant based guys. He lost 50 pounds. You know, he said the doctor kept saying to him, you got to get those oils out. You got to get those fats out. You got to get those oils out. He lost 50 pounds and then he had a heart attack. He was, he's an engineering type. And when he was in the hospital with his heart attack, he, he looked at, he was looking at why, why in hell could this happen after losing all that weight? His triglyceride over HDL ratio, he saw my video on it and his triglyceride over HDL ratio was seven at that point. He's continued to work on that. He's made a significant, uh, difference in his diet went from low carb, I mean, high carb, low fat to low carb, high fat. And now his triglyceride over HDL is less than one, which is a great place to be. Anyhow, I went off, I didn't even finish your question, Jonathan, before I went off down that bunny hole. I think Dr. Atia's guest said that statins should be used to reduce ApoB instead of LDL. Is that correct? I think at one point he did say that. And again, um, I understand why he says that. And I, I think there's clearly a, a point about that. It's debatable. Uh, but, uh, I think that you're right. Sam Siraj Mizerkanian. Sam, if you could tell us where you're from and where your, uh, culture, where your background is, that would be very helpful. What is your thought? What are your, what is your thoughts? What are your thoughts about aspirin and LP little a? Um, if you, if you don't have plaque, you don't need aspirin. If you do have plaque, you do, and it should be baby aspirin. It shouldn't be, you know, so 80 milligrams, not 300, 360, um, uh, regarding LP little a, you know, just like LDL, there's a whole series and range of debates around LP little a, and it's the same debate. Is it, uh, the cause or the result of cardiovascular inflammation. And as much as I do this all day, every day, I can tell you there's clearly a case to be made for maybe these things are the result of, not the cause of, and maybe more often. I tend to lean that way, but I don't think you can tell. I, I, I don't think the the... I think the jury's still out. Great question, Sam. Where are you from? 
Alan Turner, are there any contraindications to the use of nitric oxide supplements in secondary prevention to atherosclerosis? No, I don't think so. Here, here's the biggest issue, though. With so many of the ni uh, nitric oxides, especially if you're getting it from the, from the food itself, most commonly beets or uh, pomegranate juice. Both of them have, have a lot of that, and they're used for those supplements but both of them have a lot of sugars, a lot of carbs. So be careful of that. Other than that, you know, especially some of the supplements that I, for example, this morning I had my beetroot, but it didn't have sugar in it. So that's the, the, uh, the thing. Sam Elder, what is an ideal level of ApoB to shoot for? Um, I don't remember the number, Sam. I, I'm embarrassed to say. We always have our, uh, have our uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The lab, uh, the lab control number or the lab ranges. And here's, what, here's the conversation that I always end up having. Um, and let me see if uh, I can't. I was going to go in on my computer and show you my... Um, my LDL values and the computer, the range, the lab range. In fact, um, uh, Gilbert, if you will remind me, we'll take a snapshot of my numbers and show them next week as part of just a single slide. Do you mind doing that? We'll do that. Thank you so much. And so Sam Elder, we will we'll table that till next week. Bobby Ocampo. Why lifestyle change is the best way to prevent heart attack and stroke? What can you do if all your cardiovascular inflammation tests are above normal? Do you go to the hospital immediately? Have a fast. Have a fast. You know, going to the hospital. Uh, yes, cardi cardiovascular inflammation is the metabolic, uh, you know, end result. It's what's it's the last thing that you get before you have a heart attack. So, yes, it's something we want to be very concerned about. And that's actually part of what we look at when we look at the metabolism. We go through this test, don't guess. When you have an experience with us, it starts off with a significant number of labs. And those labs are basically showing you what your body's saying in terms of root cause drivers, which for the vast majority of us is um, uh, broken, uh, or suboptimal car uh, carb metabolism. It can also be things like um, inflammatory, other inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis is as dangerous for the specific patient as di full-blown diabetes. It's just that so few people have rheumatoid arthritis compared to the number of people that have diabetes. Um, LP little a, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, appears to be a significant risk factor. But again, these are not very, very common. FH is a risk factor. Given what I do for a living, I have a lot of FH patients, a lot of rheumatoid arthritis patients, a lot of LP little a patients, a lot of psoriatic arthritis patients. Those inflammatory arthritis uh, are a big issue. But what we do is we go through those to see what the root causes are. Then we see how far you've gone down that path of getting, of going towards uh, already having had inflammation, having plaque, and then walk you back through what can you do to reverse that? 
and we can all reverse it. We can all get to a safe place. Believe it or not. Rick Foliath, thank you, Jesus, for connecting me with Cardio Risk's upcoming CIMT event in Atlanta. It's confirmed for October 13th. Thank you, Rick, for reminding us. And uh, thank you for the acknowledgement for Jesus. Jesus is making a big uh, difference in the show. Uh, and he's doing the content in terms of the slides, and he's making a big difference in terms of how we operate as we get geared up with the, um, with the care management program. Uh, Sam Elder, why is this called APOB? Sam, um, did you see the long form content? Uh, Gail 716, eating order, such a thing. Acid following, followed by vegetables, carbs, protein, then fat. Current LDL 126, APOB 93. Um, I personally am very skeptical, and here's why. Uh, and, and it may be an issue that I'm dealing with the 90% of folks who are, you know, I'm just doing some basic public health grunt work, helping those majority of people who don't know that they have major risk factors in terms of prediabetes. I'm helping those folks discover their problems. If you're somebody who's got all of that managed, and that's where most of my patients are now. I'm still helping them do some adjustments. I personally am very skeptical. I, let me just cut to the chase. <laughs> I'm pretty skeptical that eating order is a big deal unless you're taking three hours to eat. Brad Berson, uh, Brad Berian, Berian. Some have suggested that the ApoB marker can serve as the primary marker for one status for metabolic health. Is that accurate? No. Uh, and if it glitched out and you didn't hear it, I'll repeat it. No. If, if, there's, if you can only get one thing, I'd be very, very clear that I, this is what I'd want you to get. An OGTT or even, even better, an insulin survey. And if you don't know how to get that, call us, uh, show uh, Michelle's number, Michelle and Jesus' number, 859-721-1414. Thank you so much, um, Gilbert. And thanks, Brad, for bringing up that question. It's a critical question. I just, I mean, I keep saying it. And people get snowed with all of the interesting and maybe fascinating facts, things like uh, APOB. Why get so deep in terms of something like ApoB and you don't even know that you're diabetic? It's like that's what's going on in this world. E.T. himself slept in again. E.T., I'm sorry about that. You know, you're going to have to wake up. But you got here in time for the Q&A, so thank you for, very much. Better than getting five, of six, five or six hours of sleep, though. Yeah, I'm sleeping a lot better, too. I've shared that a couple of times. About 20 minutes late, PST, rock on. Thank you so much, E.T. Bambi Grage, good to see you. Forgot the new time again. couple of you. Sorry, guys. You know what? Again, here's the thing. We had um, major continued requests 
from that those Asian time zones that wanted to be able to eke in uh, and join us live. So that's where we are. GG9909, after many months on mostly whole food plant-based nutrition, my LDL went from 53 down to 40 LDL. Is it possible to have too low of an LDL or no matter of concern? GG9909, thank you. That's a very big question and it's a very big debate. And You'll see that debate just, I mean, people are as emotional over that debate and they're all as big an expert and know as much about it as the diet debate. You know, where do you get your macros from? Do you get them from animal products? Do you get them from whole foods? Do you get them from uh, paleo? Do you get them from plant? Major emotion, major, uh, you know, unending self-appointed experts. Here's the thing. Um, there's two sides to this issue. You know, there are people like Amir, uh, what's his name, who say, no, no, you've got to have higher levels of LDL. And I think there's some validity. I think he's talking, for the most part, though, it's talking about some studies where people had unhealthy reasons for lower LDLs. Um, and he's clearly not talking about people with FH, with FH and LDL levels of three and 500. Now, people that have uh, lean mass hyper response, yeah, they can have those high levels of LDL and still be very healthy. So as you see, this starts to get really complicated. Let me add another complication factor. The, a lot of the guys, I think, I think the name was the Furrier Trials, where they were using a lot of the PCSK9s and they were getting the LDLs down into the 20s. And they said, hey, you know, we've got evidence. We actually got LDLs into the 20s and it, it didn't cause the concerns that a lot of people talked about. And in fact, we think it was healthy. I looked at the details on that study and I don't see how in the heck they could make that conclusion out of the data that they got. I feel very strongly, as you might see, that they had that preconceived notion. They got a few cases. The few cases that they had in the 20s didn't have a heart attack or didn't have brain fog or report it. So they said, we just proved it. No, they didn't. The bottom line is, I do not, or at least here's my, my, my perception of the bottom line, is that there's not enough evidence to know conclusively. I personally... I'm not worried about LDLs in the 120s. I'm not really that worried about LDLs uh, below 70. I don't, I don't try to get LDLs below 70. Uh, I'm more concerned about what I've mentioned multiple times, the inflammation associated with too much insulin and too much, too high a glucose injury to the I'm not worried so much about what's in the bloodstream in terms of LDL levels. I'm worried about what's protecting the arterial wall, the intima, and what protects that intima is the glycocalyx. And what damages the glycocalyx is not LDL. It's glucose, hyperglycemia, probably 140 or higher, hour after hour, day after day. Brendan Lenane, I wondered about the effect of high uric acid. You know, um, by the way, I keep wanting to do a video or do some topic on dropping acid. 
uh, David Perlmutter, his book, very interesting book. I've had a few questions about it. And um, Gilbert, if you will remind uh, Jesus and me to do something on dropping acid, I would appreciate it. Uh, so thank you for bringing it up, Brendan. Let me get back to your question. I wondered about the effect of high uric acid and histamine on cardiac health. Uh, high uric acid is a known um, cardiovascular risk factor. Fructose elevates the histamine, can cause many issues in intolerant people. Any thoughts on diamine oxidase supplements? I'm not familiar with diamine oxidase. I do have a lot of thoughts on uh, uric acid in the book, The Topic Dropping Acid. I'm a um, uh, Perlmutter fan, but just like Perlmutter, I mean, just like Atia and Dayspring, I'm not a 100% uh, fanboy. I have some concerns. For example, I get really nervous and well, not nervous. I just get really skeptical anytime someone tries to rewrite history and especially, or, or let me re let me rephrase that rewrite prehistory. In other words, they go back to the time before any history was recorded. They make assumptions about it and they tell you how it was. Perlmutter does a lot of that. And I just, it's like, fingernails on a chalkboard when somebody starts to do that. Uh, we have some evidence about what happened in prehistoric times, but not, a, it would, not nearly as many. Anyhow, pardon me for starting off with a criticism. I'm still a ProMutter fan. Um, brain, uh, grain, uh, grain brain, it was great, a great concept. This concept that Perlmutter's talking about now, dropping acid, is a big deal. He's talking about uric acid um, being a significant risk, risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And the core linkage is carb metabolism. And I think he's absolutely right on that. I think those of us that have, you know, it's an interesting point. Any primary care doc knows this. Uh, you go to, you go through medical school and they talk about the old concepts about gout being quote a rich man's disease because it's seafood, fish, a lot of steak that causes it. Well, yeah, you do have, and what that's associated with, for those of you who don't know, is uh, yes, some risk factor associate factors associated with the with purine the purine components of DNA, meats, which are supposed to be expensive. Put all of that aside. As a primary care doctor, what is the most common reason for precipitating a gout event? It's got nothing to do with meats. It's eating tangerines at Christmas. In other words, it's getting a major fructose load. Fructose is a five-carbon sugar, and it um, me metabolically messes with the five-carbon uh, purine ring. And people with uh, high uric acid and gout don't metabolize those very well. And they end up with uric acid, which forms crystals, which causes, you know, you can feel the crystals in their ears you, and it causes it. Uh, the crystals, the uric acid crystals actually form these needle like uh, formations when they precipitate, when they get too high, they precipitate, especially in, uh, um, uh, cartilage. So that's why I'm, 
you can feel the cartilage, uh, the impact on some people's uh, ears. But here's where, where it really has an impact. Uh, podagra or a gouty attack, a uh, one single joint, painful, um, short-lived um, arthritis. These people get major pain classically in their big toe to where even if they have a sheet on their toe when they're lying in bed, the weight of that sheet just causes excruciating pain. So I took you through some old style uh, concepts about medicine through the basics of medicine and also told you a little bit about uh, debunking some stuff uh, and providing some newer information. Bottom line, dropping acid, great topic. Uh, listen to a little bit of it uh, on YouTube if you haven't yet. Again, um, Gilbert, have us uh, make sure that Jesus and I cover that dropping acid. Fructose and glucose, uh, fructose and other sugars and their impact on uh, gout and cardiovascular disease. Very interesting topic. Thank you so much, Brendan, for bringing it up. Mega how-to man. I have high ApoB. Not sure why. Most people that have it, it's not very clear why they do. GG9909. Hello to Bart. ET himself. Ask, uh, above, ask about a, a, uh, aspirin, acetylsalicylic acid. Turmeric has the same two major functioning methods. Uh, one is a COX-2 inhibitor, and in my mind, it has to be better than aspirin and could be wrong. What's your medical opinion? I don't think, I, I don't see a lot of evidence that it's better. And here's the thing. It's very interesting. I use turmeric, curcumin, and I recommend it. And it's spotty. Some people tell me, oh, doc, that was my, you, you were worth the whole, you know, everything we did with you just for that one suggestion about turmeric or curcumin. And others just never feel anything with it. So there's some stuff there, some distinctions about cur uh, curcumin and, and turmeric that, you know, like everything else, it's complicated. And I don't think we understand it all yet. E.T. himself, I overran the character limit. Sorry about that. So I hope I got you the answer that you were, ask you were asking about or the, gave you at least the response that you were seeking or some of it. Shelly Altman, how do I locate a CIMT location? Call 859-721-1414. 859-721-1414. Jesus or Michelle can help you with that. Sax Girl Horn Boy. Good to hear from you. I don't remember hearing from you recently. Any thoughts about concomitant use of a statin and a phenofibrate? Yes, I don't do it. Um, I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze. Pardon that expression. I just don't think the decrease in risk is worth the uh, what you can do uh, with other ways of improving the risk. Great question. Thank you so much. Bobby Ocampo, any medicine that will immediately reduce inflammation? Well, it depends on what kind of inflammation. I mean, yes. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. Niacin for um, a lot of the inflammation associated with uh, LP little a or low HDL or high LDL. Uh, the 
the statins for cardiovascular inflammation, but that only requires low-dose statins when you have plaque. Uh, ACE inhibitors work together in a multiplicative fashion with low-dose statins for cardiovascular inflammation. Uh, ET himself just brought up uh, the anti-inflammatory components of some of one of the supplements, and that would be uh, curcumin. So there's a lot of them out there. Too much for me to cover in answering just one question. Sax Girl Hornboy again. Any suggestions for addressing occasional, unpredictable, nocturnal leg cramps? No. Uh, yes and no. I mean, people go, there's a whole bunch of things that can cause that, but the vast majority of them we don't really understand. Uh, statins get uh, the blame, but usually inappropriate. Sometimes it is statin, but uh, usually inappropriately. So uh, some things to try. Number one, uh, get, sometimes you have to get up and stretch that leg muscle. Uh, more uh, routine activity, musculoskeletal activity, including stretches with it sometimes helps. Um, a lot of us recommend magnesium. Magnesium uh, most of us are deficient in, and most of us don't get enough of it. And sometimes that helps with reg leg cramps. Um, good luck, though. Taking Crestor in the morning and electrolytes and fluids before bed. Thank you. So I hope that helped, Sax Girl Hornboy. Gigi from BART. Gigi, hello. It's been a long time. Nice to see you here. John Tocho, good to see you, John. Good morning, Dr. Brewer. Watching, listening as I have my first OGTT ever. Well, thank you so much for getting it. Really looking forward to the results. After four years of low carb, borderline A1C, it's discovery time. So, John, be very careful how you interpret it. I have some of the best, smartest patients that know a lot more than most docs. They get that. They look at the lab uh, interpretation and the lab says, well, you're normal but they weren't. And here's the problem. If 90% of people have prediabetes and it's not acknowledged, the lab is just looking at two standard deviations, not even two standard deviations. So the lab is saying, oh, you're normal when you may not be, when you may be uh, causing plaque from a failed carb metabolism. And you're bringing up another great point. I got to mention it. Thank you so much. <clears throat> you know, the, the uh, AACE, American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, and the uh, ACE, American College of Endocrinology, both say don't diagnose diabetes using A1C. If they've said it once, they've said it a thousand times, it's in writing. And what do docs say? that they diagnose diabetes with, A1C. And what do they really diagnose it with? Fasting glucose, which they, you know, just happen to get for some other reason. You know, it's just so frustrating. The number one cause of problem here, and our medical community botches it all the time. So uh, why does the AA, why, why do the standards committees, uh, the endocrinologists say, don't diagnose this with A1C? Because it's a hemoglobin measurement and anything that impacts hemoglobin, like uh, pregnancy, where in the world you're from, uh, genetics like uh, thalassemia, 
sickle cell, uh, and a bunch of things can impact it. Uh, kidney disease, lung disease. I mean, not, not, kid, not lung, kidney disease and liver disease both impact that. But the most common reason that I see for uh, an inaccurate A1C, artificially low. In fact, I see that in most of my long-term patients. So what's causing it? Well, they have significant insulin resistance, maybe even full-blown diabetes. I have full-blown diabetes. My last A1C was what, 5.1? It's because I'm not eating carbs and I'm managing my lifestyle. So tell me the number of doctors in this country, the doctors that you have seen, if you're watching this channel, how many doctors that you have seen would have seen me as a patient seen my A1C as 5.1 and still recognize there was a possibility that I'm a full-blown diabetic. That's the problem. So thank you so much for getting an OGTT. I wish if there was, I had one wish, it would be that everybody get one of these things. Candace, what happened to Dayspring? He had a lot of videos with J Gary, not Jerry Tobbs, Gary Tobbs, where he understands the problem with insulin resistance. Now he pushes the agenda that everyone should have an LDL under 100. I don't know. You know, it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> I haven't even seen some of his recent ones because I quit watching. Sam, and I'm busy getting the, you know, the Medicare stuff geared up. Sam Siraj, an Armenian from Dallas, Texas. Thank you so much, Sam, for sharing that. I don't think anybody, I mean, we've got people from all over. Uh, Iraq, um, Israel, England, South America, Australia, New Zealand, uh, believe it or not, China. Um, I don't think we've mentioned, anybody's mentioned from that part of the world, Armenia, the country, Georgia, any of those places. So thank you so much for sharing. Tired looking for name, $10 super chat. Thank you so much, Tired. So uh, by the way, it brings up a good point. Uh, 10 bucks may not sound like a huge amount to you guys, but um, these super chats make a difference. We do appreciate them. It's your way of helping us um, uh, support our channel. You know, folks like uh, we do. We unabashedly arbitrage economies. The Filipino economy, for example, is not what the U.S. economy is and the Mexican economy as well. We've got great staff members from those countries. Gilbert, who's managing this, uh, the video, you know, I, I have enough challenges trying to keep up with the communications. I couldn't manage the tech side and the hosting side. So Gilbert does that for us. And Gilbert's in the Philippines as we speak. Um, $10 in those economies is a big deal for helping us support this channel and get that information out there. Thank you. Peter, love your podcast, Ford. I had a triglyceride of HDL of, oh, 13.7 in February and started taking protein powder three times a day. Got my results back today. Oh, 1.3. Peter, you got to tell me. You... Uh, protein powder alone didn't do that, did it? I suspect you dropped your carbs. Tired looking for name. Oh, another. Thank you so much. Two, uh, 
Two super chats. Tired, thank you again so much for uh, your contributions. Uh, Gail, 716 below 90 APO B. And again, we'll, um, we'll get a little bit more clarity information out there in terms of the ranges and, and what people should be looking for. But as I said, I, I get a little bit nervous about covering topics like this when so many people don't even know how their body metabolizes carbs because they never had, like John Tocho has been watching this for years and is just now getting his first OGTT. MS, if a person has a diagnosis, and John is way ahead, he, he's now gone from the 95, 98% into the 2% who's actually getting this information. We're, the vast majority of us have been driving down the highway at 80 miles an hour without a speedometer and incurring huge risk that we never knew we had. MS, if a person has a diagnosis of coronary heart disease with above average LDL levels, should that person go on a statin if they've never taken it before? Um, 90, at least 90% of doctors would say, absolutely, I'm not one of them. My question is, do you have plaque? Now, I've been saying that for a decade. And if you don't have plaque, I'd say, no, you don't need it. What's interesting, most doctors still don't know that the American Heart Association has flipped over to my side just over the past couple of years. What they've said is, oh, by the way, if you have a negative calcium score, you don't need to be taking a statin. I didn't say that when I said, if you don't have plaque, because here's the problem. You can have all soft plaque, no calcium, and still have plaque. The American Heart Association, because they don't look at CIMT, they have bunked it, uh, have not recognized that you can have plaque with a negative calcium score. And we did exactly that. We looked at the study or, or the evidence. There's now studies that indicate that yes, you can have um, plaque with a zero calcium score. You know, talking about people that went off in other directions. So you, a lot of people that watched me used to watch Igor, uh, Igor or whatever his name is, who, you know, the big calcium score guy. And, you know, I still haven't seen anybody uh, in those areas covering the real issue that you can have plaque and the danger. And it's going to be the dangerous kind, the soft kind, and still have a zero calcium score. So the recommendation that came out from the American Heart Association in 2018 saying you don't have to take a statin if you have a zero calcium score, I would think again, um, I agree if you don't have plaque, but I wouldn't depend only on a calcium score. I'd look at something else, either a, um, a CIMT or a CT angiogram. Bobby Ocampo, will fermenting beetroot remain, retain nitrates? That's a good question. I think so, but I am not the expert on fermenting beetroot. BTC, hey doc, 61-year-old male, 15% body fat, low-carb diet, around 20 net carbs, 16-8. I'm assuming that means you eat only eight hours a day. And it sounds like you're doing a lot of really good stuff, BTC. Thank you for sharing. Rick Folia, confused. I heard several times this week that IR, 
I'm assuming you're meaning insulin resistance is a construct and it's not measurable. IR is not measurable. I measure that all day. I mean, that's what I do for a living. I measure IR. IR is a biochemical process where the insulin receptor becomes insensitive to insulin. What am I missing? I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, it sounds like you may be uh, missing the fact that some people are wrong. I mean, it's, you can clearly measure it. That's, what is an OGTT? What is an insulin survey if it's not a measurement of insulin resistance? John Keefe, if your glycocalyx and endothelium are perfectly healthy, does it make any difference what your APA be? <laughs> I think that's the point, John. I don't think so. And he, here's why. I mean, it's based on experience. When you do what I do, you get a whole lot of people that have really bad LDLs, you know, FH patients. You know, it's, there's a gene pool. Uh, it's getting, you know, it's gotten more mixed up with modern world and traveling, but uh, the French Canadian, there's, there's a significant increase in uh, FH in certain parts of the French Canadian gene pool where you get, uh, uh, yeah, no, that's for LP a. I'm sorry, uh, FH. With the FH community, you get a lot of people that have uh, LDL levels 200 and above. I mean, that's pretty much the definition. I get tons of those people and I don't tend to see, unless it's homozygous FH where you get 300 and above, the 180 to 250, I just don't see a whole lot of problems until they start getting something else. And you know what the something else usually is. It's usually uh, damage to that glycocalyx from insulin resistance. So that pattern supports exactly what you're saying, John, and that's clearly what I believe. The typical heterozygous FH patient, meaning LDLs level, levels 180 to 250, doesn't have problems until they start damaging their glycocalyx with insulin resistance in their 50s. Great question. Thank you so much for bringing it up. Jesus, ApoB should be under 90. Thank you so much, Jesus. I appreciate your jumping in there and helping. And uh, I guess you heard it, heard me promise that we would get a little bit deeper. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, a, a little bit deeper. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's worth a major content, but maybe just a single slide where we show like a screenshot of some of my numbers, which show the the lab, uh, the lab normals range. Sam Siraj, um, Dr. Dayspring thinks using niacin will not have any impact on cardiovascular outcome, but I lowered mine from 172 to 65 by just niacin and low carb. I see that kind of stuff all the time, Sam. I agree with you. And I don't think Dayspring would say that those are, are a reflection of zero impact on cardiovascular risk. So like I said, I'm a big day spring fan, but I don't agree with everything he says. Bobby, Bobby Ocampo, the best is just to assure, assume you're diabetic. I, you've said that multiple times, Bobby, and I agree with you 100%. If you've got a 90% probability of having at least insulin resistance, like 
the rest of us 60 years and older, just assume that you've got it. Don't, you know, until you prove otherwise. Thank you. And thank you for stating that again. You know, Bobby, anytime you want to state that, please do, because it's a message that's just not getting out there. And as you point out, yeah. So therefore, manage your lifestyle. Manage your lifestyle with the assumption that you don't metabolize carbs very well, especially if you're 50 or older. Bobby Ocampo, better to be false positive with diabetes than another one. That's sort of like uh, Pascal's wager, which is, it's a theology sort of thing, but it's the same sort of thing. Assume that you've got the problem because you're better off uh, using the lifestyle that assumes you have the problem than the opposite, which is what most of us do. Nancy Salvaggio, oh, please do comment on uric acid. Well, I did. My cardiologist just told me to get the book. Uh, well, thank you, Nancy. And again, uh, I did. We talked about it a while. Uh, we've got a lot of other comments. Mm. I'm not, uh, as usual, I don't think I'm going to be able to get to all of them. But we'll cover it a little bit. Uh, we'll cover it in a more organized fashion with slides a little bit later. Thank you so much for your interest. Uh, Kofi Adega, writing from Ghana. Thank you so much for telling us where you're from. And I don't think we've had other Ghanaians just yet. My daughter spent some time in Accra. And most people think that it's Accra. You know, typical U.S. perspective. Two questions. One, is the MACR, microalbumin creatinine screen, the most definitive test to determine endothelial damage from inflammation? I think it is. And I'm impressed with the level of sophistication that you have to have to formulate that question. I agree with you. Number two, BNP test. Um, uh is it the best blood test for heart muscle dysfunction prevention? I don't think it is. It's uh, the Baildenine folks. I think they call it the happy heart test. And there is some focus. Basically what it's saying is, is the heart uh, happy? Is it, if it's not, it's tending to um, release a thing called brain natriatic protein. What's the brain got to do with it? Simply that it was first discovered as a component of brain tissue, not because the brain has anything to do with this specific content. I use it. I don't use it a lot. Uh, I don't think it's the, um, a, a critical test for what it's a helpful test, but it's not as critical as, as a lot of people think. Bambi Grage, I have the drop acid book. I'll have to read it before you do an episode. Miss your book reviews. Thank you, Bambi. We'll have to start doing some more of them. Bobby, myuric acid initially went up when I started low carb, but went down as I continued it. Thanks for sharing. William Brewster, any thoughts on the use of collagen supplement to aid in the protection of arterial linings? Here's the problem, William. It may help, but when you've got a, a population where 90% of the ongoing damage from undiagnosed insulin resistance is never even mentioned, it's like that study that we talked about earlier. The whole impact of things like that might be working like collagen supplements gets totally washed out. 
it's that whole issue of, you know, uh, Einstein gets credited with this comment. If you want to get out of a hole, stop digging. The first thing to do is stop digging. Well, that's our problem. We're not stopping digging. We're still digging ourselves into a hole as a population. So the evidence that we get on things like collagen is just is not there. BTC, 61-year-old male. Okay, we talked about that before. 15% body fat. Okay, a gram of metformin, low-carb diet, net 20 to 25 carbs. Uh, you're doing well. 16-8 in, intermittent fasting, 5 milligrams Crestor, 10 milligrams Zetia. I tend to not combine those as much, but anyhow, fasting glucose 113. Well, you've got some insulin resistance there, don't you? And I guess you know that. That's why you're taking metformin probably. A1C of 5.5, HIT five days a week. I wouldn't do HIT five days a week. If you can do HIT uh, high-intensity interval training, if you can do it more than three days a week, don't add another day. Add intensity. So, so many people say they're doing high-intensity intervals, and they're really getting up to 80% of where they should be getting. If you can do more, add intensity, not frequency. What gives? I don't know what could Crestor be. Oh, could Crestor be why you're having A1C at 5.5 and a and a fasting glucose? Yeah, it could be. I think that's a high dose of Crestor. I rarely give 10 milligrams a day. My standard is five milligrams per day or significantly less. Uh, Robert Matarosa. Uh, became a YouTube member. Thank you so much, Robert. We appreciate that. And welcome to the to the group. Rick Folio, OT, OGTT or Kraft, which is better, Kraft. It's just harder to get. What we get, by the way, Rick, is uh, we get sort of something in between. We get insulin with each of the uh, the levels. We usually get three levels, fasting, one hour and two hour. And we get use 75 grams instead of 100 grams. So the, OG, the normal OGT is uh, no insulin values, just a fasting one hour and two hour uh, glucose uh, and a 75 grams of glucose. The, insulin, the, the standard craft insulin survey is four studies, zero, one, two, uh, and three hours, sometimes a half hour as well, which is helpful. But it also gets an, uh, an insulin each time it gets a blood level. And it uses 100 grams of, of glucose instead of 75. If that sounded confusing, if, if you haven't done these a whole, a whole lot of these, that will be confusing. But again, you can look them up, which is better. Clearly, you get more information from Kraft, but it's just harder to find one. Sunset Way, if a calcium score went from 187 to 149 in five months... Would that be a genuine change due to diet, K2, D3, or just different interpretations? I will say this, Sunset. That's very interesting. It's very unusual to get a decrease. I've seen that in, what, three patients of mine. Jerry Kurth shared his. John Lorscheider shared his. And uh, both of them were very much in the uh, situation where both of them had greatly decreased their um their cardiovascular risk. So I do think those were real absorptions of calcified plaque, which you don't see very often. I just think that it does happen. 
It could, however, be if you're not in a major mode of weight loss or, or significant cardiovascular inflammation uh, decrease, you know, the concern is that maybe you're uh, softening that calcified plaque. That's one of the concerns that I bring. The fact that you're on this channel and you're asking that question and you're asking about diet K2, D3, I assume that you've been decreasing your cardiovascular risk. So you may be one of those folks that appears to be absorbing calcified plaque. First test, just CT machine. Second test, oh, okay. So here's the other thing. I was getting ready to say, I mean, you don't tend to see these significant uh, decreases and you don't tend to see significant changes in calcium score. However, if you're using totally different methods, not uh, calcium, not the same uh, calcium score machine. And again, it looks like you're using, getting one with a CT angiogram. That very well may be a difference in the testing itself. Thank you so much. We are, uh, I'm going to zip through a couple of others real quick. I, I'm going to have to prep for the next meeting. Yes, I'm referring to Ivor Cummins from Ireland. Uh, Leo Acapoco, good to hear from you, Leo, in Orlando, but still watching. Good to hear from you, and um, thanks for the comment. Sophia Lewis, super sticker. Thank you so much, Sophia. We appreciate that. Uh, and we also had another um, super chat from William Brewster. Um, I've got, thank you so much, William. Uh, Sophia and William helping us get that content out there. Uh, Got to go, but last, uh, last question. Robert D, Robin D, first time listener. Welcome to the group, Robin. Thank you so much for your, for your interest and for joining. For info on AFH, familial hypercholesterolemia, I'm getting my LDL almost to normal by exercise and eating well. My insulin level triglycerides are healthy. My doctor doesn't know what test name to test for any small, dense LDL. Not sure that I understand the question, Robin, but um, if there's anything we can do, anything uh, we're used to dealing with this, you can uh, call us, see if there's anything we can do to help. Um, like I said, uh, FH is not something to be massively afraid of. It happens, and like I said, it's not the ma as major a risk factor for most of us. Uh, most of the those of us that have it, I don't have it. Most of us that have it, it's not as big a deal as uh, most doctors believe. We have to go. Thank you so much for your interest today. Um, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.